Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Welcome to episode number 212. Rich Kimball here along with Kerry Haskell. And we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. couple of fine conversations for you for let me try again here take two a couple of fine conversations for you this week on the podcast a little bit later on we talk with actress elizabeth davis who plays thomas jefferson in the production of 1776 at american repertory theater playing in cambridge right now but bound for broadway this fall up first though a prolific author of more than two dozen books through the years most famously, the author of Wicked that has turned into a global theatrical phenomenon, going to be made into a movie later on this year as well. He's got a, a an appearance in Maine this week and also has a brand new book out, a terrific book called Cress Watercress. So we had a chance to talk about all that with author Gregory McGuire. Gregory, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rich. I'm so glad to be able to join you this afternoon. And should I refer to you as Gregory the Executive? <laughs> do you know, how do you know about that? You've done your research. When I was in a, when I was in an orphanage, when I was a kid, the nuns and nurses used to call me Gregory the executive because apparently I had a very serious expression on my face and very dubious as if I saw administrative, you know, shortcuts about which I didn't approve <laughs> at the age of one. <laughs> It's good to set the tone early in life, right? Absolutely. And look at my son. You, you can see my shining visage, and I hope your your listeners can hear it. So I did not maintain the Gregory the Executive, you know, sort of Wall Street cast on my brow, I think. <laughs> well, let's talk about this event that's coming up on uh, June 7th down in Blue Hill at the library there. Uh, you'll be having a conversation with uh, one of your oldest and dearest friends, and Patricia McMahon. And you two met, was it back in graduate school? We met in graduate school. I think it's going on. Well, how long is that? Forty-five years ago, maybe. I, you know, we were both very, very young uh, to be in graduate school. But there we were, and she's a she's a wonderful writer and a great interviewer, I might add. And it's a it's a pleasure to be joining her as part of the the, the Word Festival. Uh, and also, I'm in town because uh, I'm helping out with a four-day conference that's running in um, at the Hiram Blake camp down there near Agamogan. I'm, I'm blanking suddenly on the name of the town. Is it, but, is it Brooksville? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, Brooksville. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I've been there before, so I shouldn't blank on the name. But, you know, I'm in Vermont now, and, and, uh, and all, all I can see from where I stood, well, it's not three long mountains and a wood. It's just <laughs> a, a thought of green space in a green shade. So... Well, I know one of the things you'll talk about uh, on June 7th uh, is why you made the shift, why you began writing for adults uh, after some success writing for younger people. And let's let's get a preview of your conversation with Patricia. Uh, what made you make that shift? Well, what made me what made me go from writing for children, which I had done for 15 years, to writing a novel for adults that was wicked, the first one, uh, is 
uh, it wasn't the 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 thirst for filthy lucre, I'll tell you, <laughs> uh, because I did not expect that I was going to be able to make this leap successfully. Nonetheless, I had it in my mind uh, all those years ago that I wanted to write about evil and I wanted to write about how people, A, can be led into or can find themselves doing things that we would commonly agree are wrong or bad or even evidence of wickedness. And that did not seem to be like subject matter for children. So I thought, Gregory, you better you better pull, push out of your cage and see whether you can find another uh, another area in which to work. And yet at the same time, look what I did, Rich. I, I decided that in order to explore evil, I was going to set convention on its head and I was going to take a children's novel and rework it so that one could see that that concepts of good and evil are really laced through all our thinking about the world, even when we're little and we're getting our first stories read to us. I, I, could anybody be prepared for what happened when when your book became an absolute global phenomenon through the Broadway production? How do you how do you adjust to that as a writer? You know, it is an it's it, it is an extraordinary thing. I think I think um, I think Wicked has now sold five million copies. Uh, and one one doesn't sign up to be a writer <laughs> with the notion that one is going to be successful. One signs up thinking, well, I'm going to be eating a lot of lentils in this life, <laughs> and probably I'm not ever going to turn my heat above 58. Uh, but in fact, I, I must have hit a, a little note that struck, that struck a, the chord of popular culture and intrigued people because the book was a big success even before Broadway got a hold of it. And then when Broadway got a hold of it, it became a mega success. So luckily, Rich, I had, um, uh, shortly after Wicked came out, I began to adopt children from overseas. I have three adopted children who are now mostly grown up. And the needs that they had uh, during those heady years where suddenly my career was finally taking off after many years of being you know, stalled at the side of the commercial highway, um, the the need to take care of these kids on you know who who were in the world uh, and in my home because I had chosen them and I had brought them in that was far higher an obligation and something about which to to consider than my own glory and success. So I survived it. I like to think uh, partly because the kids helped me. You know, if if Cheerios aren't on the table at at <laughs> you know, seven o'clock in the morning, it doesn't matter if Oprah's on hold, you got to go get the Cheerios. You know? So I went and got the Cheerios and told Oprah, you better wait, honey, I'll be back. Yeah, kids <laughs> can bring you down to earth in a hurry, can't they? <laughs> and, and a good thing too. And that's, that's not, that's not why I adopted them, but boy, did they come in handy. <laughs> We're talking with Gregory McGuire here on downtown. Now, in terms of writing for adults, well, what's the major difference? Obviously, subject matter, sure, but but one of the things that struck me in your work for younger readers is that you don't talk down to them. You treat them with great respect. And so what's the major difference in writing for an adult reader? Well, I'll tell you, I love my adult books, and, and if I only were interested in making money, I would only write adult books because I, I have more of a reputation now in that field than I do in the field of children's books, even though I've worked in children's books a lot longer. However, Rich, I'm not in this just for the money. I'm not in it for the money at all, really. 
Uh, and so if I have a really important thing that I want to say, that I want people to consider, I write it for children because I find that children are much more dedicated readers. And if they take something from the page into their hearts, it stays there. It's part of them. It becomes part of their character and part of their makeup. And what does a what does a writer want any more than that? But a little bit to to change the thinking pattern of his or her reader. Well, I, I had the joy of reading over the weekend uh, your new one for middle level readers, Cress Watercress. What a what a powerful and beautiful book and story and and such a wonderful way uh, of talking about. Oh, God, everything that's important in life, loss and family and friendship and struggle, and, and it's captured so beautifully. Well, I'm really glad you said that, Rich, and I have to admit, um, I'm really proud of it. You don't you don't often hear me say that about, uh, about my work because I usually look at something between hardcovers and think, well, in what ways has this one failed? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm a hard judge of my own work. But Crest Watercress is is the story for your for your listeners it's the story of a rabbit family that on the first page is leaving their private independent home uh their warren uh and and moving into uh a situation of of a as a bit of a downgrade for them uh and they're moving into the basement flat of an apartment tree where they have to learn to to do without their father because the father has disappeared and the father has not come back and that's why they have to leave their flat their home and move into a flat uh the mother rabbit taking care of her children uh needs to have other people around because somebody was right when she said it takes a village the, the, this mother rabbit needed somebody else to help her raise the children if the father wasn't ever going to come back and for a child rabbit or otherwise uh this kind of big transition can be terrifying, can be challenging, but also can can open up the child's heart to new experiences and new understandings of competence and new ways to experience joy. And I wanted to put all of that into, into a book that could be read with a lot of laughter and a lot of adventure. And at the same time, underneath the laughter and the adventure, there's a bedrock of a message which says the emotional life of anyone is is always changing. It's as changeable as the seasons. It's as changeable as the phases of the moon. Don't think you're going to get through something like loss and sorrow and never see it again. What you're going to learn is that these things are cyclical and you can feel loss and joy at the very same moment. So many wonderful characters. Uh, Titus the Owl, who who operates the broken arms. What a wonderful name! And then we hear the backstory of that. But but it's it's important because uh, so many of the characters are broken in some way, but but find a way to to go on with their lives and and celebrate. Well, it may it may just be it may just be the the crowd that I hang out with. But most people I know are broken in some ways too, myself included. And so. Uh, I, I think that that's also something that children aren't really uh, necessarily exposed to in their reading, that we're not, we're not all made for Hollywood. We're not all cut to get the, um, to get the A plus on our spelling papers. 
we're not all even sure what we're doing on the playground, whether we're with this group of kids or that group of kids. We're just fumbling around in our lives. And, um, and, and yet we have the capacity for joy and we have the capacity to be good comfort to others too. Um, and and we, we, we can cherish even our, our, the things that are sort of undignified about our, us because we have something to offer. I just want to spend some time somewhere along the way with the old field mouse. What a wonderful character. <laughs> I loved him. He's the, he, he's the superintendent. And I think he's from Brooklyn myself. <laughs> there was only, there's only a couple of lines that my editor asked me to take out uh, of an early draft. And one of the, one of the lines is at one point when the, the, the skunk comes for his visit <laughs> and the skunk has dyed her hair, a kind, a kind of platinum, uh, he, he says to Mama Rabbit, you know, there's a, there's a blonde waiting for you in your apartment, va la la voom and, <laughs> and my editor said, can you please take out the va 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 voom And I said, look, he's a, he's a borscht belt comedian. He's making fun. He's not saying that, you know, like hubba hubba, like somebody might have said it in the 20s. He's saying it more like Jack Benny in the 50s. He's making a joke of that kind of runaway sexism. And she said, it's not funny to me. And I said, okay, I'll take it out. <laughs> so I took out va, 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 voom. But anybody who reads the book can insert it in their minds when they get to that scene. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I have to go back and reread that now just to find that. And, and I don't know that I've come across a, a better metaphor for the uh, – the end that awaits us all, then the final drain pipe. <laughs> the final drain pipe. I know it's out there somewhere. <laughs> it's going to swallow us up eventually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really is a wonderful book. And I want to give credit too to uh, David Litchfield, who created those beautiful illustrations. Oh, Rich, I'll tell you. Um, I, I think if the book is going to be a classic, and some people are always already saying that about it, I'm not. I'm not too proud to uh, keep that from you. If the book is going to be a classic, it could well be because these are among the most beautiful illustrations you're going to see in, in this decade in a children's book. Furthermore, I will add that um, the book is profusely color, full color illustrated every fourth or sixth page in a chapter book of 220 pages. That's a huge number of color illustrations. It's an it's an absolute gift outright, and he's a genius, I think. Well, it's a beautiful book, a, a delightful read. The newest from Gregory Maguire is Cress, Watercress. And again, circle June 7th on your calendar for a chance to check out Gregory in conversation with Patricia McMahon, sponsored by our friends at the Word Festival. And we'll post on the website information on how you can register in advance for that. Uh, Gregory, I've enjoyed your work for a long time. It's a treat to get to speak with you this afternoon. That, thank you, Rich. You have a good, uh, a, I was about to say have a good weekend, but we just got over the weekend. Have a good week. <laughs> and then a good weekend next weekend. All right. Thank you, Gregory. Be well. Okay. Take care now. That's Gregory McGuire here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a quick break for a word from Cross Insurance, and we'll come back 
with the woman, that's right, the woman who plays Thomas Jefferson in a new production of the musical, 1776. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We're waiting for the chirp, chirp, chirp of an eaglet being born. Waiting for the chirp, chirp, <laughs> chirp. That's a friend of our show, Bill Daniels, in the original production of the musical 1776. A Bill played John Adams. Our next guest plays Thomas Jefferson in a very new production of the classic musical down at American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Mass. The show bound for Broadway this fall at the Roundabout Theater. We had a great time talking with actress Elizabeth A. Davis. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Good it, to be here. It was a couple of years ago that we talked with you, and uh, you were telling us at the time about this uh, production. Here we are two years later. How much of a role did uh, COVID play in delaying this whole thing? Oh, COVID was the, the lead the star, the star of the show for a while. Um, we were delayed by, I think, over two years with this production. So, you know, it, it's been a long time in the making, but it has certainly allowed uh, more research um, for the creatives to think more robustly and, and for the cast, it's for, for us to really wrestle with um, what is happening in the world and how that relates to what we have uh, been through in the forming of our country so it's been a pretty astonishing road but but we're on it so and they're off and a homecoming for you because it was uh, there at art that once was born several years ago <laughs> you know i'm currently standing right in front of the oberon theater which is where we ran once you're right 10 years ago um so it absolutely is a homecoming uh and I'm walking the cobblestones here in Harvard and uh, the, the wonderful ghosts and the old haunts <laughs> are all here. So it's, it's been great. Well, uh, we're such a fan of the work that Diane Paulus does there. And uh, she's teaming up with uh, Jeffrey L. Page in the direction of this. Uh, what's it been like working with that crew? Oh, it's been fantastic. Um, I <laughs> I was a bit delayed earlier because uh, I was in rehearsal with those two individuals who um, I've grown to really love and and respect not not from afar now, but up close and personally. And it's been a real pleasure to go through this really intense process. I, I underestimated this show a bit. I didn't I didn't realize what a monstrosity of a show it is. Um, there are so many elements. I thought, oh, this is this is going to be a pretty easy show for me. And, you know, never say that. <laughs> never say that. Um, but to, you know, all sorts of things that uh, are requiring me to make sure I'm taking care of my body, et cetera, which I should be doing anyway. But um, it's, it's a nice reminder that theater is indeed a workout of an art form. Uh, the cast of this production of 1776 are all women, uh, non-binary actors or trans actors. Why is that important, particularly at this time in America? Diane and Jeffrey were very clear that they wanted to have a representation 
of people who were not necessarily included in the original signing of the declaration. Uh, the, the declaration, while a glorious document that has been used for you know, every major cultural revolution in our country as well as many others, um, the, there were people not included in that declaration. Um, as brilliant as Thomas Jefferson was, and I do believe he was absolutely brilliant, um, he also had a body slave who was helping him while he wrote the words, all men are created equal. So we're trying to um, wrestle with what Professor Vincent Brown calls the predicament of history, mm. uh, that, that it's not neat and clean in the way we like to perhaps imagine it, that, that everything comes with, uh, as also Benjamin Franklin says in the show, compromises. They come into the world like bastard children, um, Dr. Franklin says, which obviously is, it's an offensive phrase, but, but there is, um, there is merit to the fact that, uh, nothing is perfect in its creation. Um, and as we also find in this, um, second act of this piece, the slavery clause is exactly why Diane and Jeffrey wanted to do this production in the first place. In the first draft of the declaration, Thomas Jefferson included making slavery illegal in this country. And by the time they got to the final draft, the slavery clause had been omitted. So we're wrestling with that history of what exactly the ramifications of that are and continue to be. We're talking with Elizabeth Davis here on downtown. I know part of your preparation to play Thomas Jefferson included visiting his home, right? Certainly did. Yes, I went twice, actually. The first time I went uh, was right when the pandemic hit. So the day we tried to visit Monticello was the day everything started shutting down. So I was unable to to go. But um, my husband and my son and I went back just a few days before rehearsal started and was finally able to, to, to visit Monticello. And I also read a couple of books in preparation, two of which are by um, Harvard professor Annette Gordon-Reed. I understand the costumes uh, by Emilio Sosa are a wonderful mix of the period, but also incorporating some of your own style. Yes, it's a it's a beautiful mix of making sure that the people in the cast are unique and uh, unto themselves. But I do think that there is something magical happening, and we are able to evoke uh, these men. And it, it is the alchemy of theater that is happening as we step into these costumes and assume these characters. Um, I think that Diane has done a, a pretty magical job of casting the show for essence. And I, I think regardless of gender, race, creed, etc., cetera, uh, the essence of a person remains. And so I, I, I will be interested to see how folks receive the casting and if it translates, if the story still translates. I personally think at this juncture that it does, and, and I hope that other people will find that to be the case as well. The music is great. I love those uh, those Sherman Edwards songs that were uh, <laughs> a mix of several different genres, and I, I would think those work so well. And you get to sing uh, maybe my favorite song from the show, The Egg. 
Oh, man. Uh, I, I do. I get to sing that along with Crystal Lucas Perry um, playing John Adams and Katrina Murray playing Benjamin Franklin. And the orchestrations are all brand new, uh, as there's obviously different voices singing. So I, I don't want to give too much away, but, but the orchestrations and the vocal arrangements uh, are certainly giving this song uh, and the entire um, collection of songs a new feel, uh, new excitement, but trying to capture what the writers were originally doing, which was doing something brand new. So we're also trying to do something brand new, but for 2022. We had uh, Bill Daniels on the show a few years ago who played John Adams in the original production, and that uh, was one of wow. his favorite moments as an actor. It is uh, such a remarkable show, and how exciting it is that uh, this project is making its way back to Broadway, The Roundabout, in September. How excited for you to get back to Broadway? It'll be a wonderful moment. It really will, and it's exciting that the journey is also including being at ART before coming back to Broadway. So um, I guess this is my pattern. I just like I, I guess I just do Boston into Broadway. I guess that's the only way it goes for me. Well, being up here in Maine, uh, we love ART, the opportunity we've had through the years to see some great shows before they made their way to Broadway uh, because of the wonderful work that uh, Diane does down there. So excited to get yeah. down there and see this production as well. And I, I was thinking about this. I mean, you, you've got a pretty impressive resume as it is, but what other actor will be able to say that they played both Thomas Jefferson and Blanche Dubois? I, <laughs> uh, you know, that the, the concentric circle list of, of that may be small. You are correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wish you uh, much luck. I know your official opening is coming up later this week. Uh, break a leg on opening night. We hope it's a very successful run for you, uh, both at Cambridge and then on to Broadway this fall. And uh, I know you're, you're doing double duty with previews and rehearsals right now. So we appreciate you making a few minutes for us this afternoon, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to having folks here in Cambridge. Awesome. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Take good care. That's Elizabeth A. Davis from the production of 1776 at ART in Cambridge and headed to Broadway this fall. Our thanks to Elizabeth, thanks to author Gregory McGuire, and thanks to you for being with us this week. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.